Oh, good morning. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start off with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, again we come into your presence asking for your guidance as we seek to know you and to know your Son. We pray, Father, that we as those whom he has chosen in these last days might learn something from those men and women whom he chose in the first century and that we might feel one with them. Father, we do pray then for eyes to be opened, that we might see wonderful things from your word, especially the most wonderful of all, that is the personality and character of your dear Son. And we pray, Father, that we might be inspired by him, by how he was, by who he was, by his whole manner of being, to know that this is our Lord, and that this is the one who has loved me and given himself for me. We pray, Father, then, for every blessing as we seek to understand him and to to do that through the medium of your word. For his sake. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 10, verse 1, we read there that he called unto him his twelve disciples, and he gave them power, and he gave them authority, that is what the word means, uh, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness. Now, these men who were chosen and sent forth, this is every one of us. These, <clears throat> these people were following the Lord around Galilee in the first century. These people were very much our pattern. And so, therefore, really, we, we feel ourselves, as it were, at one with them in all this. And yet, when we're told there that he was given or thought that he gave them authority, this is pretty well out of the Septuagint of Numbers 27, verse 20. When Moses asks God to raise up another to do his work, and God gives him Joshua and says to him, you shall invest him with some of your authority. Now, this would seamlessly then be in context with the end of uh, chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 37, that we looked at last week. Uh, Sorry, verse uh, 36. Uh, He saw the multitudes, was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And uh, I think we commented that that is an allusion to Moses' words of Numbers 27, verse 17 that Israel were as the sheep with no shepherd. So this is very much in the Lord's mind. And he's at this relatively early stage in the ministry telling the disciples that you are going to be Joshua for me. Now, what does Joshua mean? It's the Hebrew word for Jesus. In other words, he's saying, insofar as I send you out, you are going to be Jesus. That's, that's the sense that he had. You are going to be me. And that explains a, a slight paradox, which we, we have more in the Mark record than we do here, where we read in Mark 3.14 that Jesus chose men that they should be with him and that he should send them forth. So then, were they with him or were they sent forth? Well, the answer is that insofar as they were sent forth, uh, they were him to, to this world. And again in Mark 4, verse 10, when Jesus was alone, the twelve asked him, well, was he alone or did he have the twelve with him? They were him. And that is very much a theme in all the record of of preaching of the gospel, that in our preaching of the gospel, he has no other body, no other face, no other mouth than, than us, that we are him because we are in Christ in our witness to the world. And he gave them this authority over every kind of disease, we're told. And I think that shows that absolutely every kind of moral weakness, every kind of sickness, every kind of human problem has been engaged with by the Lord. And we, as his body, between the the lot of us worldwide, engage likewise with every kind of human need. So, verse 3, and Matthew the publican. Well, this is Matthew's own gospel. And he describes himself as the publican. And remember that the gospel records are transcripts of how, for example, Matthew used to preach the gospel. And so, in his presentation of the gospel, he just put the little point in there that I used to be a publican. He's emphasizing and harping on, if you like, his own weakness. 
And that, I think, should be a feature of our own witness. And in fact, it is that which gives our presentation of the gospel credibility by constantly recognizing, as the disciples do throughout the gospel records, uh, their own weakness of understanding and behavior. Now, just looking through this list of, of disciples here, Simon the Canaanite. Now, this doesn't mean somebody from Canaan, but it's from the Greek word kananites, which means a zealot, Simon the Zealot, some translations say. So then, what a, what a contrast. You've got Matthew the publican, the tax collector, who was seen as the great betrayer, the absolutely secular Jew who had uh, sided with the Romans and become one of the hated tax collectors, and I think they hated him all the more because his other name, according to the other Gospels, was Levi. So he may well have been a Levite who really, uh, really turned around 180 degrees and went from being a, a, a Levite to being a, a tax collector. Anyway, he's put together with Simon the uh, Kananites, the, uh, the zealot, absolutely at the very opposite end of the political spectrum. And then you've got Judas Iscariot. Now, it's a bit hard to understand Iscariot, but it could be that Iscariot is from Sicarius, which means dagger man, or basically assassin. That would mean that he also, like Simon, was from one of the most far-right of the resistance groups. And maybe Simon the Canaanite and the Canaanites and, and Judas Iscariot are put together in the same pair because in this list of disciples they're in pairs because they were sent out in pairs. Maybe those two were put together because they were from similar backgrounds. My point is that here you have a very wide uh, selection of people. And that is, I think, a, a feature, a characteristic of the body of Christ, that it includes all men, not in the sense of every single person, of course, but all men, how can we understand that, seeing not all will be saved, how can we understand all men, all types of men? I think we have to read that ellipsis in. So then, this is why the body of Christ has universal appeal to everybody, because we feature all types of persons. This is why the unity which there was supposed to be in the early church, the Lord said, John 17, was enough to convert the world. Just their unity alone. Now, Galatians 3, male, female, master, slave, Jew, Gentile, all one in Christ, and with the leadership structure of the early church open to spiritual qualification. Not who had the most money, not who was the master in secular life, but you could have a slave as the spiritual leader of the ecclesia because he had certain spiritual qualifications. And uh, the miserable critics of, of Christianity have, have claimed that the account of uh, the Christian unity in the, in the beginning of the book of Acts just simply must be rubbish because it is, uh, as one person said, a sociological impossibility. And they're right, it's a sociological impossibility, but the point is that this happened. Of course it messed up, but this was the intention, and it was potentially achievable. Now, when you look at the structure of ecclesias or churches today, you tend to find that similar types of people have conglomerated together. So you will have the church of the white middle class, the church of the black middle class, and so on and so forth. The church of the asylum seekers, the church of the immigrants, etc. And yet, the intention is that we should all be one. Now I've done a lot of work over the years with, with feeding homeless people. And I have heard a lot of cases, and I've seen cases, where, okay, yeah, you have these homeless people in, and they come in, and they... they actually accept the gospel, get baptized, but somehow, no, no, no. If you're going to have them coming in to, you know, the uh, memorial meeting, to the, uh, you know, the sort of serious Sunday service, I'm out of here. I'm not sitting next to someone who's coughing TB all over me. I'm not uh, sitting next to somebody who, who smells. I'm not sitting next to someone who looks like they might occasionally uh, do drugs or get drunk or... or even be a prostitute or possibly be gay, you know, 
no, 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 I'm out of here. That, that's the general mentality. And so what happens? You end up with little churches, little ecclesias, all made up of similar people. And that's not the intention. The idea is that all types of people come together. And going further, you can get people who are wired in the same way. People, for example, who are simply very liberal-minded and uh, don't really like any kind of dogma, uh, they come together. And then you get people who are very literalistic, that no, 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 the Bible says this, we must do that in an absolutely dead literal way, and if you can't stick that, then, well, there's the door, basically. Uh, And so you end up with ecclesias and churches and groups of believers, etc., so-called fellowships, being comprised, really, of people of similar uh, psychological wiring. Whereas the challenge is that the whole lot of us come together in one church, in one place at one time. That was the the unity that was powerful enough to convert the world, according to John 17. And it's the same today. It's just as possible. But you see all that beginning in the way the Lord picked, and he carefully picked, these disciples. There was a very wide range. People who in secular life would hate each other's guts. You know, the, uh, the the zealots just couldn't stand tax collectors, publicans, like Matthew. And it's Matthew's gospel. It's Matthew who records this. So then, the whole purpose of Christianity is to bind together all these disparate types of personalities in one body and to present that to the world as Jesus, as the ultimate witness to the power of his personality and his resurrection. The fact that doesn't happen, or that it happens in a very dysfunctional way, is tragic. But the ideal is that that is what should happen. So he says that they are sent, uh, verse 6, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, in Matthew 15, verse 24, he tells that Canaanite woman that he is sent, he personally is sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but here he sends the disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So again, I say that in any mission work that we do, in any preaching, in any witness work that you do, in any form, be it online or in life or whatever, you are Jesus, you are living out his message to the world. Now, the parables about searching for the lost sheep until it is found. Suddenly, this opens up when you realize, according to the interpretation we have here in Matthew 10, that the lost sheep in the first instance was Israel. And when the Lord says that he is like the good shepherd who looks for for the sheep until he finds it and brings it back, this is really his undying hope in finding Israel. Now, in the end, it seems to me that he did not achieve that in the course of his life. He hoped for that, and God's love for Israel is, I think, the ultimate encouragement for every one of us, and we doubt his love and his purpose for me. That he has, as it were, given us the parade example in his love for Israel and his uh, relationship to Israel to ultimately encourage every single one of us. Now, he doesn't say that the disciples are the, uh, the uh, new shepherds of Israel. He says that he has sent them to the, the lost sheep to, to tell them. Uh, the sheep who were scattered, he'd gone to tell them. They were to go and tell them that the kingdom is at hand. Now, in Ezekiel 34, we read about Israel being the lost sheep. And why were they the lost sheep? Ezekiel 34 says, because of bad shepherds who didn't care for them. So they were scattered lost sheep because of bad leadership. So in the end, the Lord's intention was that his disciples were to be the new shepherds of Israel. That they were to be the the ones who would replace the the Pharisees, scribes, etc., and yet they were very ordinary, secular men. At the moment, he tells them to just go and uh, go to them with, with a message. 
Later on, of course, he's, he uses the language of shepherding. He says to Peter, you know, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So then <clears throat> these men were being trained in order to take over in this new Israel from the uh, Jewish religious leadership. Now you notice in verse 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. But who's he sending them to? To the lost sheep. So sheep are sent to sheep. And that, I think, is a principle which guides us in our witness, that we are to bridge build between that audience, that person you're talking to, and yourself. They were sent as sheep to the lost sheep. Not as shepherds at this stage to the, to the lost sheep, but as, as sheep to the lost sheep. Because how much more powerful is it if a sheep walks up to, uh, to a lost sheep and says, hey, buddy, over here. Rather than, oh, well, here comes the shepherd. Um, <clears throat> so then this was the idea. And in that bridge building, that is the way that we bring people to Christ, it seems to me, in conversation. We all want to know, how can I preach? How can I turn conversations around? The problem is everyone is an island and everyone's got defenses all around them. You've got to somehow pierce that, and you've got to somehow build that bridge. And just walking up to someone and saying, hey you, uh, Jesus died for you on the, on the cross, he wasn't God, he was the son of God. Um, <clears throat> you need to be baptized by dipping in water, not by sprinkling, and like an, and have a good day. Now, this not going to persuade, well I say anyone, very few people. The essence is to build bridges. So there you are in a, in a kiddie's playground, and you're the mother, and you're talking to another mother. And uh, your kids are playing there. Straight away you can start to build a bridge that you can uh, say something about your own experience or comment on an experience that that woman has told you. And straight away that is what I would call the flash. The flash. Whereby, yes, that's exactly how I feel. Yes, I know exactly what you mean because. You know? Uh, and uh, it, it happens in life. Uh, not just with mothers sitting in playgrounds. Happens absolutely everywhere. Oh, I was on a Lufthansa flight uh, and it got cancelled uh, and then they, they, uh, they, uh, they gave us a meal voucher for, for 10 euros and you know what, the cheapest coffee in the Munich airport is like 11 euros. Uh, and, you know, someone complaining about that and then you come in with experience of yours and there is a flash moment where, yes... I know. I was there. I you know, have been, I've walked that road with you. And it is then, once that bridge is built, that you can go over it. But then you have credibility to explain you know, other things, to, to turn the conversation to spiritual, uh, spiritual things. And so the disciples were sent out as sheep to the lost sheep. But getting back to their message, verse 7, as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, in one sense, the kingdom is a title of Jesus. Remember, he later says, you're looking for the kingdom of God to come, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he was referring to himself. He was using the kingdom of God as a title for himself. Because he, in his character and personality, was the essence of the kingdom of which he was king. And yet, the idea of it is at hand, that really means not just it is soon coming, but more, more specifically, is being brought near. There is a different sense of movement. The kingdom of heaven is being brought near. And it seems to me that the idea was that if Israel repented, then the kingdom of God would have come. After all, they didn't have to crucify Jesus. The father, or the uh, owner of the vineyard, uh, thought, surely they will reverence my son. They didn't reverence my servants, the prophets, but surely they reverence my son, and so forth. But they didn't. And this is a major uh, theme. Matthew 21, verse 34, uses exactly the same phrase to say that when the time of harvest drew near... 
then uh, the husbandman refused to give the fruits, and therefore the son was sent. And the idea of the second coming drawing near is a perfectly biblical idea. We read it a number of times, Romans 13, 12, James 5, 8, Hebrews 10, 25, about this day of the Lord drawing near. And I suppose the classic uh, case would be 2 Peter 3, where we, we read about hastening the coming of the day of the Lord by repentance and by spiritual behavior. So then, I would say, I would say that the actual calendar date of the coming of Christ does not exist. There is no calendar date because what we have instead are conditions that must be fulfilled. And the great condition, it seems to me, is that Israel repent. And in that sense, the kingdom of God was drawing near if people repented and could be drawn near by the repentance of Israel. And that is why I really would say that in terms of formal missionary work, our focus ought to be on witnessing to, to Israel, the Jewish people, and particularly people in the land of Israel. Later on, uh, he tells them, uh, don't uh, take uh, anything much with you, heal the sick, so verse 8, cleanse the lepers. Now, this was the job of the priests. As soon as you heard about cleansing lepers, well, it was the, the priest's job to cleanse lepers. And he's asking them to do this. Now, in Matthew 8, verse 3, we read the same words about how Jesus cleansed a leper. And he's saying, my mission is now in your hands. Now, don't forget... Many of these disciples were totally secular people, fishermen, even a tax collector, uh, and so forth. And the Lord is, is aiming and succeeded ultimately in, in sort of beating, as it were, this, this group of people, this group of secular people, mixed up people, into the new priesthood. And the, the paradigm shift for these people would have been absolutely huge because their whole idea was that, well, Religion is done by the specialists, rather like the mentality there is in the average Roman Catholic or Russian Orthodox person today. Religion is done by the specialists, and you have specialists who go to seminary, etc., and then they end up our priests, and that's how it is. And we poor people in the masses, we are simply the mass, and we are led by our leaders. And yet the Lord is saying here that you... You ordinary masses, you are to be the new priesthood. And of course this comes out very clearly in First Peter 2 when, when Peter talks about us as the new priesthood. The whole body of Christ that is in him is a new priesthood. So not for us to, to palm off the responsibility any, any longer onto the specialists, onto the, the pastoral team, as Protestants would call it, uh, to the priest, to the pastor, to the, the leaders, uh, the brethren, uh, as uh, some would call them. No, it is for every one of us, ultimately, to take that responsibility. He sends them out, incidentally, to also to, to raise the dead. Verse 8, I just wonder... I just wonder whether they ever actually did that. In other words, I, I wonder whether he actually gave them more potential power than they actually used. Freely you have received, freely give. Well, the idea of freely there is not really about finance. The idea is not don't charge anybody for the gospel because God didn't make you pay money for it. I don't think that is the idea. Uh, the Greek word there seems to literally mean without a cause. The idea is that the gift of God's grace is absolutely free, just given for the sake of giving, because God loves giving. And we are to uh, reflect that in our giving of the gospel. Now, here there is a, a note, I think, to, to be learnt by, uh, or to be underlined by all of us, because 
Many people have the idea, oh, I'd love to be generous, I'd really love to be generous, but I can't be because I don't have any money. I'm poor. I can't be generous. I know we should be, but that doesn't apply to me. Because, uh, well, I, I, a little bit of money I have just goes on, my family, etc. I, I can't give anything. And this is one of the problems of the, the, the money-crazy world we live in, where everything's got a cash price on it. No, you can freely give. You can give and give and give. And what can you do? What can you give? Give of the gospel. Freely you received, freely give it. Uh, and as I say, the idea is not so much... Um, of, uh, of not charging, but simply giving out in a free, without a cause manner that you have been given the gospel. And the same word is used about the free gift of not only grace, but of salvation of the last day. Drink the water of life freely, Revelation 21 verse 6. Uh, Romans 8.32, we are freely given salvation. So then, in a sense, that free gift that we have received now, that free gift that we shall receive by grace in the last day, is to be reflected in our freely giving of the gospel, without a cause, is the, as I say, the, the idea behind the word free, and, or the word translated free. So the idea is not, oh yeah, this person might be interested, they seem to be uh, sort of a hobby level theologian, let me uh, let me just uh, suggest that they read, uh, I don't know, Bible Basics or something or other. No, it, it's not a case of weighing a guy up and thinking, oh yeah, well, yeah, I think you might be interested, but ah, no, no, that one won't be. Without a cause, freely you have been given, freely give, like the sower, uh, Throwing the seed absolutely everywhere, including on the bad ground, on the pathway, absolutely everywhere. Get that message out there to as many people as possible. Now he, he says, provide, verse 9, neither gold, silver, brass in, in your persons. The idea, I think, verse 10, is that they were to believe that they would be provided for, that they were laborers and that they would be provided for. They were to trust that what was basically necessary would be provided. And it's clear here that there is an allusion to the, 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 um, the journey of Israel through the wilderness, that their shoes, verse 10, uh, and clothing, etc., did not wear out and that somehow everything was provided. So I think it's a huge challenge to these people, to these disciples, to say, look, go on, the, on this trip and just believe. But somehow the financial side of it is all going to work out. There's an old brother who said to me many years ago, I've never seen a preaching initiative fail for lack of funds. And that is also what I have seen. That somehow God will provide if in your preaching uh, desire and initiatives, you are sincerely motivated. God will not let money stand in the way. But it is a pretty huge challenge to these, these brothers to, to go out with absolutely nothing behind them. And he says don't even provide brass, which was the, uh, the lowest value coin. Now, they were laborers. They were workers. And we have to recognize that that is also what we are doing. When you go to preach the gospel, you are working for him, and he will, if you work, and don't do it as just part of a hobby, or just tack it onto your holiday, or whatever, that if you're serious that this is my profession, that this is my job, as it were, for him, he will provide. That's what it's saying. And yet he's used this word, this idea of laborers, at the end of chapter 9, the harvest is tr truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few, and I commented, I believe, last week that the Greek word translated few doesn't just mean few numerically, but weak. That's the idea, that these laborers are so weak that actually not all the harvest is going to be, be got in. And that's the picture again in Matthew 20, when the owner of the vineyard goes out and just hires anybody. The people who stood around idle all day because no one would hire them, because they were lazy, old, invalid, weak, 
or whatever, and he says, look, just go and do something, because the harvest is wasting. This is the last day of the harvest. Go out there and just get something in. And so he says that, uh, yes, you are the laborers in this great field, and that God is going to provide for you. When he says the laborer is worthy of his food, uh, the Greek really can mean rations, and it's uh, a military term as if they were soldiers on duty. So then all this worry, which there often is, uh, especially amongst younger people, about, well, we don't have funds for preaching or for witness or whatever. If you are totally motivated for what you are doing for him, you are worthy of your rations, not of any more than basic food and drink, uh, but you will receive that. Believe me, you will receive that. God will provide. Now, as I say, you've got to have the mentality that you're a soldier. Uh, and you'll get your rations, that you're a laborer, and you'll get your, your payment. You'll get your, well, not payment, but you'll get your food. The laborer is worthy of his food, not of his wages, but of his food. That basic food and clothing somehow, somehow will be provided. If you want more than that, you're wrongly motivated. If... Uh, Somehow, no, it's got to be this and it's got to be that. No, 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 no. Uh, You've you, you missed the point. The, the point is, if you see the need, and the, the need is the call, and the need is there, of course, then somehow you will be provided for. He says that they were to go into whatever town or city they came to, verse 11, and inquire in it who was worthy and stay there. And then in verse 13 and 14, And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, shake off the dust of your feet against those people. Now, the implication seems to be that the, the worthy would be those who had responded to the, the message already. Now, how are they to go into a town and say, hey, who's worthy here? Oh, you? Well, I'm going to come and stay in your house. Here's my peace. And if they said, no, get out, then you're going to say, hi, I take my peace from you, and you're going to be cursed in the last day. Now, what's going on here? It's not as if they're just told to go and preach to, to the world of unbelievers. They are to go into the house of those who are worthy. Now... As I say, that seems to imply that there were people in these towns who already had somehow responded. Now, the Lord's fame had gone throughout Israel, according to Matthew 4.24. So it could be that they weren't going, as it were, into, <clears throat> into totally uh, virgin territory. Now, you should also be aware that all Israel had also heard the teaching of John the Baptist and had responded to it. And so, in trying to understand this word worthy, I think you go back to the first mention of the word in the New Testament, which is in Matthew 3, verse 8, where John the Baptist asked his followers to bring forth fruits that were worthy of repentance. And I want to suggest that the worthy here is like a technical term for those who had responded to John's preaching about Jesus. So then they're told to go into the town and sort out who was the worthy, that is, who had responded to John's teaching, and there abide. I think his intention was that they built up house churches, they built up family groups rather than as he says, going from house to house, as Luke's record says. Uh, and that, of course, is clearly the basis of New Testament Christianity, that as we go on in the later New Testament, it was a network of house churches. There's no archaeological evidence for any uh, large building in the first century. It was always uh, house churches. So, into those houses that were worthy, they should enter and salute it. Now, the usual salutation was shalom, peace. And the Lord says in John, my peace, my shalom, I give unto you, not as the world gives it, like just as a formality, hey, shalom, yeah, shalom to you. 
No, but my shalom, my peace, and his peace was peace with God, forgiveness, etc. So they were to offer that household real peace. And if the household uh, rejected them, then that peace would be withdrawn from the household and they were really going to be treated as Gentiles. They were to shake off the dust of their feet against them, which is what the rabbis said you should, a Jew should do when he comes back from a Gentile country. If the house is worthy, then the peace, your peace, the peace of Jesus comes upon it. So they were to ask who was worthy, and it seems that those who had a name for being worthy showed themselves worthy by having the, the disciples staying in, the, in their house and by giving them goodwill and support. And if they didn't, then they showed themselves to only have a name of being worthy. Now, I, my, my suggestion is then that they went to the people who were known for having responded to John the Baptist's teaching those who had a name for believing in Jesus, those who had accepted John's message and had apparently brought forth worthy uh, fruits, and they were to go to those people. If those people did not accept them, those people were not really worthy. Now, that makes sense in terms of historical reconstruction, but you see then, I, I think, a very challenging lesson to ask, that it is not difficult if one lives in a uh, quote Christian kind of country or in a, maybe a, a Western kind of culture, a European culture, to say, yeah, yeah, I am a Christian. Yeah, I believe. Okay. But the litmus test, the litmus test of your Christianity is your attitude to the Lord's children, to the Lord's disciples, whether you will have them into your home, whether you will fellowship with them. And if you will not, then it was just name only. And we know from so much uh, in the Gospel records that the great response which there had been uh, to the preaching of John the Baptist was not really very more than surface level. This is, in my opinion, the, the whole point of the parable of the sower, which... Uh, point we will make when we look at the parable of the sower, that the Lord is explaining to the disciples why there was this huge amount of initial growth that didn't basically come to anything. This is his commentary on the fact that so many people responded to John, but although they accepted theoretically his message about Jesus, when it actually came to Jesus and encountering Jesus, they didn't want to know. Now, it seems to me, as I say, in essence, trans translating all this into our age, that it's very easy to, to fly the flag and say, yep, I'm, I'm known in, in my uh, environment as being a believer. Okay, but the test of that, like here, who is called worthy and who actually is worthy, is your attitude to the brethren of Jesus. It's your attitude to the disciples. If you shut the door and say, no, you can't come here and break bread. Uh, no, yeah, well, I accept that you're, you're a believer, but you, you understand, understand, you can come here. Well, isn't this exactly what's going on here? Someone who was known as worthy, but, oh, what, put up uh, a publican or a, a shady sort of person like uh, Simon the Canonites, the, the zealot, no, 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 sorry, mate, no, 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 no. You, you're not coming in here, I'm sorry, we can't have you here. Yeah, well, what's the Lord say that uh, you really uh, are going to have to have your uh, have the, the dust shaken off, uh, shake off your, the dust of your feet against those people because they're just Gentiles; they're not real believers. And so, our attitude to our brethren this is absolutely crucial. This is what shows whether our faith is more than simply name only. That yes, we some time ago responded to the gospel as those people responded to John the Baptist's message, uh, but that's, uh, that's it. His shalom, his peace, would then return, would not be accepted any longer. They would not have that peace with God unless they accepted, unless they gave 
God's shalom to those that were in Christ. Incidentally, it says in verse 14, Whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, you and your words are paralleled. Because the preacher is his message. There has got to be, or there is, a congruence between the message and the person. The medium is the message. In that sense, the word is God, because his word is him. And it's the same with us. Our word is us. We are our word to men. That's why you can preach without words in the sense of lexical items, because you are the message. It's Psalm 19, that the the sun and the the moon, etc., are God's witnesses in heaven. And that verse is, is quoted in the New Testament about our witness, almost without words. For those who had accepted Jesus through the teaching of John the Baptist and then rejected his brethren, the disciples, the Lord says, verse 15, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for them. So there's going to be degrees of punishment in the last day. And I, I think that uh, would not be in terms of uh, some people you know, get punished with a certain degree of heat and other people it's, uh, they're fried a bit slower or a bit quicker or whatever. No, it, it's simply that the more someone has known and the more someone has responded, and then if they throw it all away, well, yes, their pain will be the greater, will it not? Incidentally, the, the people of the land of Sodom, according to this, are going to appear on the Day of Judgment and be condemned. It's just not going to be quite as awful for them as for those, as I'm suggesting, disciples of John the Baptist who accepted Jesus, then they rejected the disciples, and therefore they're going to be really punished. Um, so why then are the people of Sodom going to be there? Were they really responsible? If knowledge brings responsibility to, uh, to resurrection and judgment, well, yes, the fact that they're going to be resurrected just shows that, that they obviously did know a certain amount, know enough to be judged. Where they got that knowledge from, you could say that because Melchizedek lived in the area, he was king of Salem, uh, that maybe they got it from from him. Uh, maybe Abraham made a, a witness to those sitters, but that would all be outside of the biblical record. It was quite possible. Um, but what we do know from the Bible is that Lot lived in Sodom and vexed his righteous soul from day to day about their behavior. So it could be that the witness of Lot, his example was enough to make them, the people of Sodom, responsible. So it seems to me. So that's a great, I think, example to us, encouragement to us, that our example is worth far more than we possibly might ever imagine. Well, the Lord says, 16, that I send you forth as sheep, and I've said that they were sent as sheep to the lost sheep of Israel, Uh, But I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, it was a well-known Jewish uh, idea that Israel were, as a sheep, surrounded by 70 wolves. That's in the Pesikta Labati and a number of of the the Jewish texts of the time. The idea was that the 70 wolves were the Gentile nations, and there is Israel in the midst of the Gentile world as the innocent sheep. And yet the Lord is turning all this round because the wolves that he has in view are quite clearly the, uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership that were in opposition to him. And he's saying that they are the Gentiles, and that fits in with what he just said in verse 14, shake the dust off your feet against these people. Treat them as Gentiles. Do what uh, a good Jew is supposed to do when he comes back to Israel from the Gentile world. Shake off the Gentile dust before you enter Israel. So you see how there's this radical inversion of values. That the old Israel, the old system is being taken away and the Lord is creating this new way of thinking, this new Israel. And no wonder later in the New Testament you read such dramatic language as 
heaven and earth, the Jewish heavens and earth being destroyed and a new one rising. Yeah, it was that radical. He says, be wise as serpents. Now, I think he's really uh, alluding to the way that when a snake moves into a new area, it's cautious, it, it uses camouflage, it spies out opportunities, it doesn't go immediately for what looks like the best target, uh, etc. And he's saying that this is to be your way. Now, again, there is a, uh, <clears throat> a saying within Judaism, and if you look at my exposition of, of Matthew, you'll you see the, the, the references, uh, that the people of God, the Israelites, were to be cunning as serpents towards the Gentiles. So again, the Lord is hinting by using this language that actually Israel are as the Gentiles to me. So then, it is a, an absolutely radical uh, redrawing of, uh, of the map. Beware of men, he says, and again, he he's clearly has in, in view here the, uh, the Pharisees, uh, who several times he says in the Gospels, beware of the Pharisees. He, he's, uh, Matthew seven fifteen sixteen 16, verses 6, 11, and 12, and Luke twenty forty six. 46. Uh, it's quite clear that beware of the Pharisees, beware of the Jewish religious leaders, beware of men, he says here in chapter 10, verse 17. He clearly is talking about the, uh, the Jews, because they will deliver you up to the councils, the Sanhedrin, and the language of being delivered up or handed over is exactly the language used later about the handing over of the Lord Jesus to the, the council of the Sanhedrin. So he's saying that you're going to you're going to have some part in my suffering and death by your preaching work. Incidentally, there is unfortunately the idea that. Uh, preaching work, particularly mission work, is in some sense glamorous, that you young guy jets off to some exotic foreign land in Africa or somewhere and preaches the gospel to those in darkness and so forth. Um, but the idea of real witness and of real mission work is very often expressed in terms of picking up the cross. Um, and here, when the Lord says, I'm sending you out to do this work, um, and they are going to deliver you up to the council, to the Sanhedrin. You're going to go through what I'm going to go through, in essence, in my suffering and death. He's again saying that actually the real work of witness is a taking up of the cross, and ultimately it's a death with Jesus. It's not an exotic experience at all. Now, he says they will scourge you. Well, this was the punishment within the synagogues to synagogue members for blasphemy. And Paul says he was scourged in the synagogues three times, 2 Corinthians 11.25. So I would take from this that the Lord is expecting that they will remain within the synagogue system, as indeed Paul did, until they were chucked out. I mean, he says in John 16, verse 2, there will come a time when they shall cast you out of the synagogue. So he, he expects them to remain within the synagogue system. You see, he could have said, uh, get right out of the synagogue system, have nothing to do with it, leave it. Uh, you know, he, he could have said that, but he doesn't. He implies you should remain within the synagogue system and take the, the scourging for blasphemy that they could only give, they could only whip people who were members, if, if you like, communicant members of the synagogue. Now straight away you see then that the Lord did not believe in any form of guilt by association. He didn't say, ah, oh, they got false doctrine, get out of there. They got false practice, be gone. He says, no, no, stay within that system and even suffer scourging, whipping, which was a synagogue punishment, until such time, John 16, 2, as they chuck you out. So then, I think this should be our attitude, that we should be totally open in our attitude of fellowship to others, and really they will decide. They will chuck you out. If you teach the truth, if you speak the truth, if you live the truth, eventually those that are not of the truth 
will chug you out rather than you having to take all these decisions. So he, he says, they're going to deliver you up. Verse uh, 19, when they deliver you up. You notice that he doesn't say if they deliver you up. He wants the disciples to understand what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, that persecution is a case of when and not if, that it will definitely happen, that it will surely happen. And we need to take that on board. You see that also in the parable of the, of the sower, that when persecution arises because of the word, some people will fall away. Now, when this sort of thing happens and we start to suffer because of our belief, it takes some people right off guard, I guess because they had been groomed into Christ uh, and kind of uh, assumed that it was all just uh, a, a continuation of the kind of social club experience that, uh, that they had got used to in church, etc. But let's get something absolutely plain, that to follow Christ means to be persecuted. Take up your cross and follow me. This is what he says. There's no question about oh, well, that, you know, we might be lucky enough to get away with it. No, no, no. It comes to each of us in one form or another. It must do. It is inevitable. But he says, take no thought what you're going to answer. Um, that's exactly out of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25, 27, 28, uh, 31, 34. He says it time and again, take no anxious thought. So he's saying that those general principles that are the essence of Christianity, of not taking anxious thought, that these will be uh, repeated and will come to their ultimate term under persecution. And he says in 19, it shall be given you what to speak. Now that's very much the language of the prophets, Jeremiah particularly in Jeremiah 1. It's also the language used to Moses in Exodus 4, where God says, look, I will put the right words in your mouth. Now, just keep on remembering that these were men who were living in a situation where Moses and the prophets were seen as sort of great saintly people right up there like the stars, like uh, people in stained glass windows. And the Lord is saying, you are to aspire and pretend to Moses and the prophets. You are the new Israel. And so it is absolutely for uh, for us too, that we can think that we as secular people, who are we as ordinary secular people to ever attain to Moses and the prophets? Uh, that not this for the specialists? But this is the whole wonderful point of the gospel, that the Lord is using ordinary secular people like you and me to be his new priesthood, to be this new family, to be this, uh, this new uh, leadership, and that ultimately we are to be the shepherds of the whole world. And again, we think, oh, no, no, that's not for me. But this is the wonder of the message, that God has a special plan to use you, that you are not just doomed or destined to exist 